So, uh, Proverbs chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, we are going to continue with verses 9 and 10 this morning. Would you read with me? It says this, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. This morning's text is very much connected to last week's passage. In verses 1 through 8 last week, Luke helped us see that we need to trust the Lord ultimately because we depend on Him. And as we depend on the Lord, He promises peace, rest, and wisdom to navigate this life. This morning's text has to do with money, with our wealth, with our possessions. Now, maybe you guys can help me out here. What is the common phrase? Blank is the root of all evil. Money. Is, is that a true statement? If you said no, you are correct. Well, it could be a statement that somebody says, but it's not a biblical statement. While, even though it sounds nice, the Bible actually says this. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So scripture does not teach that money itself is evil. Rather, our wealth and possessions are a gift from God that we are called to manage. However, scripture also emphasizes that wealth is dangerous. And wealth is dangerous because it tempts us to put our hope in money instead of God. Jesus was very tuned into the potential dangers of wealth. And, and this is why there's a greater focus in the teachings of Jesus on money and finances than heaven and hell combined. Jesus taught that the way we spend our money demonstrates what we value and ultimately what we worship. He said it's impossible to love both God and to love money. He also said that it's easier for a camel to enter in through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. I was looking at a statistic the other day, and it said that if you made $32,000 a year, you would be among the top 1% of wealth earners in the world, $32,000. So when scripture is talking to the rich, it is talking to most of us in this room. It is speaking directly to us. And because of this, I want each of us to consider the very real possibility that the love of money might have captured our hearts. For some, money is a means to comfort and pleasure. You might think that by, through money, you can buy stuff and experiences that will bring you joy. And when stuff and experiences don't satisfy, you want more stuff and experiences. And if you can't get more stuff because you don't have enough money, you covet other people's stuff and lifestyle. Assuming that if you only had what they had, the car, the house, the vacations, then you would be happy. But when the pursuit of comfort and pleasure becomes your God, 
your heart has been captured by the love of money. For others, money is a means of gaining significance. You hope that because of the things you own, the clothes you wear, or the lifestyle you live, that people would respect you or think highly of you. When money is a means of gaining significance in the eyes of others, your heart has been captured by the love of money. Still for others, money is a means to security. You might feel like you always need to be saving up for that rainy day. You look at your bank account constantly with fear and anxiety, wondering if you will have enough. When money becomes a means of security, your heart has been captured by the love of money. I know that my heart is tempted by the love of money to serve the idols of pleasure, significance, and security. And this is a dangerous thing when it is left unchecked. But praise God, in his wisdom, he has given us an antidote for the love of money. And it is called generosity. And this is the focus of our text this morning, and we will see that it is specifically through our generous giving that God protects our hearts from the love of money and enables us to experience greater blessings than that what is promised through the temporary pursuits of money. So first, we'll consider the meaning of these two verses in the context of the Old Testament, and then we'll consider what generosity looks like for us today. So let's jump right in. In verse 9, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. The word honor here means to be heavy, to treat God as weighty, to give the Lord glory. Solomon here is continuing to speak to his son, and he instructs him in this way. Because of who God is as creator and sustainer, and because of what he has done to redeem you, honor him with your wealth and the first fruits of all your produce. Now, when the people of Israel entered the promised land, they were instructed to honor the Lord, first of all, by remembering that all wealth comes from God. Deuteronomy 8.18 says this, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth, that he may confirm his covenant that he swore to your fathers as it is this day. They were not to think that they accumulated their wealth because of their own efforts, but because God graciously blessed them. And the way that God ensured that they would continually remember that their wealth comes from the Lord he instituted a system of tithes and offerings. Now, some say that Old Testament believers were required to give a tenth of their um, wealth and possessions. But uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that. So let's consider briefly what the tithe was for a moment. What was the tithe? Leviticus 20, 30 to 32 says this. Every tithe... The the portions underlined are important, okay? Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the first fruit or the fruit of the trees, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal 
of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the Lord. So tithes here were required of what the people produced in the land. This included everything from grains and fruit from the harvest and also the tenth of the herds, the flock. Notice that the tithe was only required of farmers and herdsmen. If you were not a farmer or if you had less than 10 animals in your flock, you were not required to tithe. And there's no indication that people from other vocations were required to tithe either. There was nothing said about tithing on everything that you earn or income you receive from trade or investments. This is going to be important as we try to understand how that translates to giving today. Now, also, it's likely that there wasn't just one tithe. There were three separate tithes. And I'll have a graphic up here on the screen. The first tithe was the Levitical tithe, and this was intended to support the Levites. The Levites were the tribe from which the priests served in the tabernacle, and because they did not receive an inheritance from the land, their livelihood was funded from the Levitical tithe. The second tithe was a festival tithe, and this was to facilitate fellowship and rejoicing among God's people. Now, what's interesting is, remember the tithe is flock and herd, um, that some Israelites lived too far away to transport their flock and, um, and produce to the sanctuary for their tithe. So, so God actually made an interesting provision for them. He said, you can sell your flock and your produce, and then you can come to the sanctuary, which is the place of the tabernacle. And it says this in Deuteronomy, spend the money on whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves. Now, this tithe was not a legalistic burden, but an invitation to a party. So consider the priority of fellowshipping and rejoicing and celebrating God with his people. And it was an integral part of the worship of the people of Israel. Finally, there was a welfare tithe. And this was a tithe that was required every three years. And this was reserved for the immigrant in the land, for the fatherless, for widows, and those who had significant need. On top of these tithes, there were free will offerings, and these were voluntary. The amount was not prescribed, and they were given beyond what was required of the tithe. This could include animals, it could include produce, it could include even money at times. Oftentimes, we see free will offerings collected for the building of the tabernacle or the temple or the rebuilding of the temple later on. So all in all, giving under the Mosaic Covenant was much more than 10%. It was more likely closer to something like 22% before free will offerings. Now, in the second part of verse 9, Solomon instructs his son not only just to honor the Lord, but to give from the first fruits of the ground. Now, if an Israelite was to bring a tithe or offering to the Lord, there was an expectation that it would be from the first and the best of the harvest of the crops or the best of the animals. And the idea is that because who God is, he is the first and he is the best, he is high and holy, that God deserved the best from us. 
And not only that, but the first fruits, giving of the first fruits was an act of faith. That by giving the first and best to the Lord, you would need to trust and depend on the Lord to provide for your needs. It would require faith to give of the first fruit of the harvest and trusting that God is going to bring in the harvest later in the year. Now let's move on to verse 10 to see how Solomon motivates his son to generous giving. He says, then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. Now under Moses, God made a covenant with his people to bless them with a land and material blessings on the condition that they would be completely devoted to the Lord. There's a list of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. And here's an excerpt of it as it relates to wealth. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments as I commanded you today, this is Moses telling the people of Israel before they go into the land, blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock, and the Lord will make you abound in prosperity. Solomon is reminding his son here of the material and spiritual blessings promised to the one who honors the Lord with their first and best. So now that we kind of understand these verses in the context of the Old Testament, uh, let's consider what these verses mean in the context of the whole Bible. Now I know this is a debated topic, but and I, we can totally disagree on this, by the way, but I don't believe that tithing is required for Christians today. Now, I ha this is, it's going to require more time than I have this morning, but it's basically clear that the tithe was tied to the land. It was only required of farmers and herdsmen, and it was in place in many ways to provide for the needs of the Levites and was kind of a welfare system for those who were poor in the land. So there will be significant hurdles in directly applying the requirement for a tithe for New Testament believers. There's a lot more reasons, but those are a few. Now, if it is true that the tithe is not required, what does it look for us to be generous today? So I want to consider for the rest of our time two points. What does it look for us to be generous and what should motivate us to be generous today? So one thing we see with the coming of Christ is that there is a greater emphasis on the heart of obedience instead of simply external obedience to the law. You can see this emphasis in Jesus' teaching. Jesus said, uh, you, know, you know it's said, do not commit adultery. That's good, but I tell you that even if you've committed lust, if you've lusted after another woman, you have committed adultery. Similarly, Jesus talks about giving. When you give... That's good, but don't be like the hypocrites who do it out in the public for everyone to see. Rather, do it in secret. Generosity is still required, but the heart of generosity is much more important. So what does generous giving look for us today? I'm going to give you three heart postures that are extremely important in our giving. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul spends two chapters persuading the church in Corinth to participate in an offering for the relief of the poor saints in Jerusalem. In these two chapters, we see that the heart that is generous pleases the Lord. So first thing we see is that 
we must give willingly. We give willingly. 2 Corinthians 9, 5 says this, I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you to arrange in advance for the gift you promise. Paul speaking to the Corinthians, talking about the gift that they were going to collect for the saints in Jerusalem, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction, not just an amount, a specific amount. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not, reluct not reluctantly or under compulsion. So Paul here is more concerned about the heart of giving than the amount of giving. He wanted the Corinthians to give willingly and prayerfully as each one decided in their own heart. So the point is this, you can give 10% reluctantly and totally be missing it. On the other hand, you could give less than 10% or more than 10% willingly and God is pleased and honored by that. So question, is your giving willing? Or do you give reluctantly? Do you just give a percentage to check off the box? Or are you prayerfully asking the Lord how much of His money you should be giving away? Not only should our giving be willing, but it should be joyful. We give joyfully. Just here in a few verses later, Paul says, For God loves a cheerful giver. God loves those who joyfully give. Parents, you, you know exactly what this is talking about. When your child obeys you, but he has an attitude, fine, I guess I'll go clean my room. As compared to when they gladly say, I would love to go clean my room. Now, I know that doesn't happen, but wouldn't that be exciting if it did? Similarly, when our giving is cheerful, filled with joy, God loves it. And isn't that a reason to give generously and to give joyfully? So ask yourself this morning, is your giving joyful? I know some of you understand this joyful giving when you give gifts to others, something thoughtful, and it brings you so much joy when you do that. Our giving to the Lord should also bring that type of joy and excitement. Third, we should give sacrificially. Paul, again, addressing the Corinthians, says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. So, so Paul here, talking to the Corinthians, he's trying to raise money for the relief efforts in Jerusalem, and he's going to use the example of the Macedonians. Okay, to motivate the Corinthians to give. And he says this about them. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that shocking? For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Notice the circumstances of the Macedonian Christians. They were in a severe test of affliction, probably persecution. And they were extremely poor. They didn't have a lot of money. 
but that did not stop them from overflowing in generosity. You see, giving always costs us something, whether you are poor or rich. And giving sacrificially means that there will always be a level of a hurt to your standard of living. There's always something else you could have spent that money on. That's true. But when you sacrificially give, you are modeling our Savior who sacrificially gave himself up for us. So let me ask you, is your giving sacrificial? Or does your giving not really affect your standard of living? Now, the next thing I want to consider is what should motivate us to be generous? The first thing that should motivate us is because of God's generosity that has been shown to us in Christ. In the same passage, Paul uses that as well to motivate giving. He says this, I say this not as a command. You're not required to give a particular amount, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty might become rich. The gospel with its endless supply is the deepest well of motivation to move us to radical generosity. For a Christian, our thankfulness for what God has done to save us in Christ is the ultimate motivation to radical generosity. Because God has been ridiculously generous to us in Christ, we can be ridiculously generous as well. So how does your generosity towards others reflect God's generosity towards you? We will always fall short of God's standards of generosity and the wealth of his generosity to us, but there should be a visible connection between the generosity in your life and the generosity that God has shown to us in Christ. The second reason that we should be generous and second motivation to give is because of the blessings promised to us in this life. Because of the blessings promised to us in this life. Our text highlights this motivation for us in verse 10. Give and you will be blessed in this life. Yes, I know there was an emphasis in the Old Testament on material blessings when people honored the Lord with their wealth, but the principle still carries over to the New Testament. And I know in our circles we hesitate to emphasize the temporal blessings of being generous because of how it's been misused by false teachers to motivate people, to manipulate people into giving. Yet we cannot set aside the significant motivation that is given in Scripture. Let's look at a few New Testament examples. Jesus himself said this, Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So, if you give with the marks of a generous heart that we just talked about earlier, there is something better coming your way. It will be running over in your lap in abundance. 
consider how Paul, again, motivates the Corinthians to give. He says this, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. bountifully. We should not shy away from the blessings that are promised to those who give generously. But let's ask this question, what are the blessings promised to those who give? Is it more money? Like if you give $10, God is going to give you 20 He's going to give you back more? Well, I do think that is true sometimes, but not always. Let's look at the next few verses to see what Paul means by reaping bountifully. What does it mean for us to reap bountifully? 2 Corinthians 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, at all times, you may abound in every good work. The blessing in this life of generous giving is ultimately sufficiency in all things and at all times. This is the height of blessings as it relates to money and possessions. And it is a life that is characterized by contentment. Contentment is the ultimate blessing in this life for a generous giver. So how does this work? Listen to a Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, who describes how a Christian attains contentment. A Christian comes, becomes content not by addition. This is totally modernized. This is not actually how the quote goes, but I totally modernize this because it, it's really hard to read the Puritans in their um, old English. But by subtraction. What I mean is that a Christian does not become content by getting more money and possessions. That's, that's what the world tells us. Rather, he becomes content by subtracting from his desires so that his desires equal his circumstances. The world tells us that we gain contentment by raising our possessions to our desires. But the Christian has another way to contentment. That is, he can bring his desires down to his possessions and so become content. In a culture that presses us to have things that are bigger and better, contentment is extremely rare. We think a new stuff, a better lifestyle will bring contentment. But the excitement of stuff quickly fades. A generous person, one who joyfully, sacrificially, and willingly gives, is the most contented man. What about you? Are you seeking God's blessing of contentment in your present circumstances. Well, let me tell you this. God uses generosity as a means to shed our hearts from the addiction we have to stuff and causes our hearts to be content. Finally, another motivation. We should be generous because of the blessings promised in the life to come. Matthew 6 says this, Do not lay for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
The point is this, that Jesus is making here, it doesn't make sense to invest your money in stuff, in material things that do not last. And things that you cannot take with you when you die. I got a very clear reminder of this yesterday as I'm working on the sermon that my fridge decides to stop working. But that is true of everything we have. Stuff is going to break. Everything, your wealth, your possessions, you're going to leave behind you. Your house will not be here 100 years from now. Okay, maybe it will, but not 200 years from now. Something that is a reality of all that we possess. But if you invest your money in eternal things, it will be waiting for you when you arrive in heaven. That's what Jesus is trying to say. So what are these treasures in heaven that is promised to a generous giver? First, these treasures refer to eternal rewards. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you, there's not going to be one act of kindness that you do in the name of Jesus that he will not reward you for. Even a cup of water given in his name or a dollar given to someone in need will have a reverberation in eternity. And that is meant to motivate us. A passage that I've, a verse that I've been meditating on recently is Ephesians 6, 8. Whatever good anyone does, whatever good, he will receive back from the Lord. If I told you today that every sacrificial gift that you give is being recorded in heaven, it has been written down, and you will receive a reward for it that is unfading and eternal. That should motivate us. The second thing that treasures in heaven refers to is people. Eternal friendships. Luke 16 says this, And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth. That's the money that we use every day. So that when it fails, because moth and rust will destroy, then, you may receive, then they may receive you into their eternal dwellings. Now, I know this is something we don't think about very often, but if you want to hear more about this, I would encourage you to go back and listen to Steve's sermon on Luke 16. But the point is simply this. God has entrusted us wealth to use it to gain eternal friendships. One pastor says it this way, invest your money in the souls of men and women who will someday greet you in heaven with thanksgiving when you arrive. What a thought, what an incredible thought to take your money and purchase eternal friendships by investing in their kingdom. What a joy to think about the reality that every little bit that you give towards the local church or to missionaries, every little bit of your possessions that you shared with others is a means by which God rescues someone from hell and with whom you will worship the Lord for all eternity. All right, I know... Um, what I wanted to conclude with is something to get us started. I know many of you have been giving for a long time, but maybe some of you are just like, I know I want to give, I just don't know how to start. So let me be very practical here. And none of this is prescriptive, it's something you can pray about and think about, but just a few guidelines of how you can start in the area of giving. Number one, give yourself to the Lord before giving 
any money at all. Paul even said this about uh, the Macedonians who gave, and this not, they gave not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us through their giving. We must give ourselves to the Lord first. We must give ourselves to the Lord acknowledging that we are a sinner in need of God's grace. Giving does not bring us to some sort of special status before God. It is a, not a means by which our sins can be forgiven. Giving that pleases the Lord is ultimately rooted in thankfulness for the grace that we have already received in the gospel. So before you give, <laughs> give yourself to the Lord. Number two, prayerfully ask the Lord how much of his money you should give away. Giving is not something that you just do spontaneously when your heart moves you. To grow in this grace, it requires intentionality. Paul reminded the Corinthians of this in 1 Corinthians 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are to do. On the first day of each week, each of you is to put something aside and to store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul wanted the Corinthians to be careful and intentional when they thought about giving, so that they could be prayerful about it and not feel guilted into it um, when the moment comes when Paul came to collect the gift. So 10% might be a good place to start, but 10% is not as important as the heart of giving. And please remember that this morning. What God is pleased with is a willing, joyful, and sacrificial heart. 10% might be a massive sacrifice for some families. For, 10 for other families, 10% is nothing at all. But let me encourage you, as you're prayerfully asking the Lord how much to give, if you're someone who makes a budget, this is the number, this is the first number that you should be writing down in your budget that is not negotiable. And why do I say that? This is one way that you can give your first fruits to the Lord. The first and the best of what you have to the Lord. And trust God that he will provide for all your other needs. Number three, decide where you will give. Ultimately, you have to decide where you will give. So first thing I would encourage you to do is give regularly to the church where you are a member. Give regularly to the church where you are a member. Scripture tells us that an important aspect of giving to the local church is to support the ministry of full-time pastors. And this is not something we should shy away from because Scripture commands and commends us to this end. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18 says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Paul, in another place of Corinthians, says this, that those who preach the gospel should be able to earn their living through the gospel. What a privilege we have at our church to have two full-time pastors who give of themselves to tirelessly teach and preach and pray for and encourage and counsel us. Steve and Kale, we are thankful 
to God for you. And it is a joy, and I just want to commend you as a church. You all joyfully and generously give to the church. Giving is not just an individual act. That's something we must remember as well. Giving is, an, is also a corporate act of the local church that is focused on advancing the gospel. And we should remember that as we are giving. That is why part of our membership covenant to each other, uh, we, we confess this statement together as members who have covenanted together to be part of this body. We said, I'm just talking about church members here. We will cheerfully and regularly give our finances to the support of the congregation, care for the needs of others, and support the work of our gospel partners. And to the members of our church, I must say that there is a significant amount of grace that is evident among you. There are so many of you who spur me on to be more generous, and I am so grateful for your example. Now, through our church, uh, along with supporting our pastors and helping with the operating expenses, which is needed for the mission of this church, you can also give through many other ways in our church. You can give towards our building fund, which is something people in the Old Testament did to care for the place of God's worship. And we want to do that so that this place can be a place of worship where we gather together and it could multiply opportunities for gospel ministry. You can also give towards our benevolence fund, and this is to help those who are in financial needs in our church. You can give towards our foster and adoption fund to help parents in our church who are thinking about fostering and adopting. All of this is on our website, or if you want to just give while you're here, there's an offering box at the back of the church. Another place where you can decide to give is you can give to support missionaries. They are also those who preach the gospel and they should be able to earn a living through the gospel. There's a great need to support missionaries who are going to hard places, especially unreached people groups to proclaim the gospel. That's something that I am burdened for because it, it's said, according to statistics, only 3% of giving in the United States goes towards the proclamation is to support missionaries who are in hard-to-reach places of the gospel. So through our church, you can give towards the Strategic Mission Fund to support our missionaries who are working to strengthen and plant churches among the unreached. There are many other worthy organizations as well. I would encourage you to give towards justice causes. You can give towards pregnancy centers like Hope Rising in our own city. Organizations focused on alleviating poverty, ending human trafficking. You can sponsor a child through Covenant Mercies. That's something our church has really enjoyed partnering with that organization over the last few years. Finally, those are some formal ways to give, but just generally in your day-to-day -day life, think of creative ways to give. Offer to pay for someone's meal. Open your homes and be hospitable. Give thoughtful gifts to bless others. All of that is under generosity. Use your talents and gifts to do something practical here at the church to serve a need. Many creative ways that we can give. And that is especially important to those of you who are in college <laughs> or younger than college and you don't have 
any money, but there are many ways to give of your time and your talents to serve the Lord. All right, finally, pray for grace to grow in your giving. Pray for grace to grow in your giving. Whether you've already been giving for a long time or you're just starting to give, generous giving is not a destination. Generous giving is not a destination that you reach once you give a certain percentage because our hearts can always grow in being more willing and more joyful and more sacrificial. So let's pray, all of us, let us pray for grace to grow in generosity. In the book of Proverbs, fools think that giving generously will cause them to lose out on things in this life. Some fools think that they will be poorer if they give. But the wisdom of Solomon and the wisdom of Christ that we considered this morning points to the reality that generous giving guards our hearts from the love of money and positions us to receive the promise of contentment in this life and eternal rewards in the life to come. Let me read that again. Generous giving guards our hearts from the love of money and positions us to receive the promise of contentment in this life and eternal rewards in the life to come. Amen? I would love to talk to you more about this.